Welcome, citizens of the globe, to the Front End Heroes podcast, where we discuss all things villainous and heroic about the front end of software development. My name is Evan Payne. I'm a senior front end developer at Actimo, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Scott Francis, a senior front end engineer at Porsche. How are you doing, Scott? Yeah, really good, thanks. Um, ended today with uh, a little a little victory in life. I, um, I managed to detangle a roll of cling film, which I thought was <laughs> lost, and <laughs> And like, and I'm feeling super proud, and really like I'm nailing life at the moment. So yeah, I'm feeling good. I can see that. Well done. Thank you. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by Netcentric, an award-winning Adobe Global Alliance partner headquartered in Switzerland, with offices all over Europe as well as in Pune, India. Uh, they are currently hiring for a number of roles, so if you're looking, check them out. We are, as ever, so glad to have their support with this show. Today we have a new guest on our show. Um, she is an award-winning creative and co-author of the book Data Sketches, uh, Shirley Wu. Can you tell us a bit about who you are and how you got started in the crazy front-end world? <laughs> yes, hello. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast, or which is now not just podcast, it's a vodcast? Sure. <laughs> it is. It is. Has video? Hello. <laughs> Hi, my name is Shirley, and uh, I guess the title I've given myself is Independent Creator of Data Visualizations, which just means that I work with a variety of different clients in the um, mostly in the tech and media and journalism spaces, and I help them tell visual stories with their data. Um, and how did I get into the crazy world of front end? That was that was the question, right? So <laughs> let's see. Uh, I guess this started in college, uh, where I was studying business. Um, with a concentration in finance, realized how much that career was not for me. And so I started taking computer science classes towards the end of my, um, I guess in the, towards the end of my junior year, so my third year. Um, and I only had three semesters of courses and I was like, oh, I really want a software engineering job out of college. And so I started applying um, and uh, the one strength I had was that I've always been quite a visual person. And so I have done um, art uh, all throughout like my childhood and my high school years. And I did graphic design clubs in college. And so I didn't have any like software engineering internships on my resume or anything, but I did have like a very strong understanding of, I guess, just what websites look like and, you know, design and just like self-taught design principles. And so I think that's what allowed me to get a front end developer position out of college because they definitely were not going to consider me for any back end jobs. They were like, you haven't taken algorithms. And I'm like, no, I haven't. I'm sorry. So <laughs> that's how I kind of just fell into this role. And, um, and I've been really, really enjoying it since. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I want us to go into maybe a little more on, on some of that. Um, but first, I want to just say today's episode title is A Bit Like Cerebro. 
is what I came up with. And it's this idea that uh, certain front end heroes are actually able to put on this special helmet that amplifies their powers and lets them turn a bunch of numbers or database tables into something that is beautiful and comprehensible. And we are going to talk, I think, as we can, because you're the expert to us, um, about data visualization and the tools that are used and how you approach that. And what's interesting already is that this idea of having some design sensibilities can help with that. Um, I mean, like I have design, I have sensibilities, right? I have some taste, but I always get stuck in the deciding factor. Like I, I can't do the design part myself. Um, how, how is your level of comfort with walking both sides of that? Um, I think you already said you, you, you like that balance. That's such a great question. So I, by no means, will claim myself as as like a designer, um, which is sometimes people will introduce me as a designer and I'm like, I do not feel qualified to be called a designer (laughs) (laughs) because I think designers have such tough jobs. Um, But I think uh, what I do have is uh, an entire childhood spent kind of like, um, you know, painting and drawing. So I think I've like developed the sense of how colors could play with each other. I took art classes throughout high school. So I think from there, um, I internalize a lot about um, different color theories. Um, and I think also equally important is a kind of like layout. Uh, I don't know if they're, I, I don't know if I would call them layout theory, but like kind of that thought process of how do you position things? um, How do you position your objects such that it kind of guides a person's eyes throughout your art piece? Or in in the case of a website, how do you position all of your text or images such that it guides um, a uh, audience's eyes through the website? Um, And so I feel like that was probably the two most important things I internalized. while studying art. And then um, when I was in university, um, I definitely wasn't taught, you know, typography or um, even even kind of color theory in terms of how it works on a website. Because like, that is very different from how to, like, composite a painting, right? Um, But I think I had enough of that knowledge that uh, when I started kind of um, uh, started within this graphic design club and then kind of started like designing flyers and things. Um, it started to kind of like bleed over. And I think what that club helped me with was um, paying attention to different uh, design pieces and then internalizing what I liked about them. Like, um, And so all of that to say that I think by the time I started coding as like a front-end developer, um, I don't think I could make any decisions just yet, but I I could kind of, and, and at that point, I think uh, as like a front-end developer at a at a company, um, there were plenty of designers that could make those decisions and all I had to do was like implement them. Um so it wasn't until I started freelancing on my own and I had to kind of like work with my clients on the whole spectrum of data visualization of having to, you know, analyze their data and come up with a design and um, code that. It wasn't until that started happening that I was like, 
oh, I need to go and actually study up on these things. So what I did was I kind of studied information design. So I'm still like very bad when it comes to like having to design my own websites. But um, I I have enough design like <laughs> internalized, I guess, to be able to pick my own color palettes, to be able to like um, think through the UX um, and to think through like how uh, data should be essentially converted into a visual form. So, well, so yeah, sorry, uh, sorry, sorry. Um, like, so this journey that you've been on to get to like the point that you are now, then do you think that, um, do you look back at the starting, the starting point when you first started doing data visualization and now look at it and like see the difference from like where you started to where you are now, like just the process has, like, has the process become easier for you and like you've become more comfortable with it with it as you've gone along? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. So the biggest change I've noticed in myself is that when I was a software engineer, like when my role was as a software engineer, um, and even a little bit after, my primary concern was um uh how how fun is it to implement this thing? It's like, it, I think my enjoyment of something was definitely on the, um, like, how how much of a technical challenge is it? And then, like, the feeling of being able to accomplish that. Um, and so my priority was very much on, um, you know, just something that's, like, technically complex and so- sophisticated. Um, and I think at that time, I didn't care as much Um let's say in my personal projects, um, I didn't care about as much if like my, an audience could understand uh, like this, you know, personal project data viz I decided to make um, as long as I had a lot of fun doing the like technical part. Um, And I think that the biggest change for me, actually, I think there's two big changes. The first one is the, that um, as I started doing more, um, client projects, uh, I started to understand like how important it is to make sure that my end audience can understand <laughs> the data that I'm trying to visualize and um, uh, and understand how to read the visualization. Um, and so I my priorities shifted from kind of in, like technical enjoyment to really emphasizing on the design part. So I think that was the biggest first biggest shift. Um, and I think that was really inspired by um, my friend Elijah Meeks once said that data visualization is not a uh, engineering problem. It is a design problem. And that really resonated with me. Um, and the second thing really is that um, I, I also had a shift from, I think, um, let, let me know if this is true, but I feel like when we're as coders, we kind of, I, I tend to have this, like, I used to have this whole, like, oh, code is the solution for everything. Like, no matter what, like, it is my one hammer and tool for all of my nails. Um, and so I would just do everything with code. And through the years, I realized that, like, actually, there's there's a lot of other tools that's not code that actually helps me do the job much faster. So one quick example is um, I when I first started gathering my own data sets, um, I <laughs> really foolishly wrote out um, my CSV file 
in a text editor. So this is not even code. This is just like, I'm just so used to like text editors. So I would be like, you know, entry, comma, entry, comma, entry, next line, entry, comma. <laughs> and then and then I saw my friend write about how she cleans all of her data in, um, in Excel. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, I honestly, I honestly did a similar thing. I was like, "Oh, I need, I need like a spreadsheet," mm-hmm. and started to try and like write something in code, and then realized like, "Well, why aren't you just using a spreadsheet?" <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I think front enders are, are guilty of that. I think back enders are as well. Like everyone is. It's like, like you say, when you have a hammer, everything looks, looks like, like a nail. Hit with a nail, it's fine. Yeah. Um, and you know, being a mature software engineer or whatever your field is, is being able to think outside the box a little and trying to get other approaches. It's the same, look, on a smaller scale, it's the same thing where it's like, it's easy to throw JavaScript at every problem when you're already mm-hmm. in the code editor, but sometimes you can do it with CSS. Yeah. You know, and if that's more appropriate, if it's gonna be faster, it's a good choice to make. Um, we want to. I want to talk a little more about, like, what data visualization actually is and means. Mm-hmm. And I'll segue into that by framing it. Um, I mean, it's we've talked a bit about this already, but it's this idea that um, when you're building, uh, when you're working on code, uh, and and these sorts of things you have a, a certain level of constraints that are placed upon you. When you have a blank canvas, there's very few constraints that are mm-hmm. placed upon you. And it's interesting to think of data visualization as all of a sudden you've, you do have a blank canvas, but you've been given a constraint. Mm. You might have a color palette or a limited amount of space, but you also have to get that information across that the data wants you to. And I think I find that any kind of limitation helps with creativity and sort mm-hmm. of cornering you in. And so I wonder, one, have you had that same experience yourself? And do you, do you think that's an accurate understanding of it? And two, can you help us come to an understanding of what basically data visualization means? As in, for someone that is like, what, what are you even talking about? Um, maybe like one of your first projects you worked on or something along those lines. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, let me answer those questions in reverse, because I think it might be helpful to define data visualization first. Um, so I think of data visualization as the practice of taking, um, let's say we have uh, rows of data, like, let's say even just small, small data set of, you know, maybe a few dozen, even at a few dozen, um, our human brains, it's so hard for our human brains to like look at rows of data in like, let's say a database and be like, oh, looking at this column, I can see a trend happening in this column. It's just so hard for us to wrap our minds around just like rows and rows of numbers. Um, And so data visualization is a practice of trying to transform those rows of data into something visual um, that our brains can then find patterns from. So um, the probably the most familiar data visualizations for us is like, let's say the line chart that you might see in like stock or like for, for like stock performance. And that shows like the price of stock over time, or we see bar charts a lot and we see pie charts a lot. Um, 
pie charts are hated on, but uh, <laughs> but there is there's good use cases for them. Um, but yeah, so those are some of the most kind of like what we might be familiar with. And then and then I think from there on, um, there's there's a lot of different kind of charts and graphs uh, that help show different sorts of data. So um, the line chart, for example, would help us show temporal data. Um, and let's say like maps are a form of visualization that um, helps us see geospatial data and patterns in any sort of geographic relationships. Um, we might see like network diagrams to see graph graphical sorry yeah so sorry node and link diagrams to see kind of like network relationships um so there's a lot of different kinds and i think that's what's like super interesting and um I, i've kind of already alluded to it which is um yes very much to your question about constraints um the biggest constraint that we have for data visualization is making sure that whatever we're trying to communicate with the data, like whatever it is that we found, um, we want to make sure that those are, that we show them in a non-misleading way. Um, in some in some instances, there are more correct answers than less, like there are, like I don't think there's really ever a like one correct answer. In that sense, I think it's like very much a design problem of like you're trying to optimize for the like audience's understanding. But I think there are more correct answers of like you don't ever want to, you know, use a chart that wasn't meant for let's say like you know this uh you know you wouldn't ever try to use a line chart to show relationships between different nodes for example so um i think there are those sorts of constraints that i think are really really great for um as a starting point of like helping us narrow down like you said from that really blank canvas of like just a lot of potential possibilities um, down to just kind of like the subset to be like, okay, this is where we can start. But I think that, but I think um, beyond that, I think just after that starting point, I think that there's like so much creative opportunity. And actually, um, if you want to get into it, there is sort of like a conversation within the data viz community about like, should visualizations be like more Spartan and very direct to the point? And this is kind of like um, a lot more of, I think, business analytics sort of. It's just like, you know, you just want to get to the point. Or do you want something that's like more kind of... Um, the, the word that was used to describe my work was more eccentric <laughs> so it's like it doesn't it was like orthodox versus eccentric of like you know it's it's got a little bit more of a flair I guess um and that kind of helps draw in people's curiosities um but my personal belief is that as long as we are representing the data correctly I think we should have the freedom the creative freedom to um do whatever we want with our visualizations so yeah, um, I, I, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. Um, so I'm just thinking about like you have such a collection of work. I mean, like um, I I just Thank had you. I just had your your book delivered. Like, um, Thank you so much. No worries, <laughs> no worries. I'm a big fan of like uh, of things like this, and like, um, and I, I literally have only just had it delivered, but like, so I have just flicked through it. Like this book contains so much like 
it's like a real collection of work. So how do you like, yeah, there's constraints and you, um, so you have something, you have like a starting point with the data set, but like, how do you come up with so many ideas? Like, I know this could be just like, um, like, you know, how are artists artists, but I mean, like how it is such a body of work that like, how do you come up with these and like seemingly like keep things fresh all the time? Ooh, um, great question. So the first answer is that uh, they're not all mine. As in, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. So the book is called Data Sketches, um, and we kind of write, we, we kind of document the, the whole process behind 24 of our data visualizations. Um, so uh, I did 12 of those projects, and my friend Nani Bremer did the other 12. So that's the first. I didn't do all 24. That's the first part of the answer. Um, but even then, I think, um, then there's the second part of the answer is that, like, uh, this book took about three years. So it's projects across a span of three years. So it's not like I'm, like, sitting there across, like, you know, two months churning out 12 different ideas. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it really was, I think, um, uh, just, it, it really was kind of like this process. Um, but I guess the first actual answer is that, um, I tend to, for my, like, I guess for my data visualization practice, I tend to try not to look at too many other people's work in data visualization. So I try my best like I'll, you know, once in a while, I'll like look at a bunch to be like, oh, this is what, you know, has been happening in the field. Um, but then on the day to day, I try not to look at them in too much detail because I'm just always so scared that I'll um, I'll look at something and then I'll like love it so much. And then um, and then I'll just do exactly the same thing. And then that will get into my head about how I'm just a copycat. Um, so I try really hard um, to look at. Uh, and be inspired by things that are kind of like tangential to our field. So love looking at like different websites that are beautiful. I actually really, before the pandemic, loved going to art museums and kind of be inspired by um, like the way that they use color in there or the expression in there and and the like kind of like the the objects that they use in there. Um, and, and try to like draw that in to my work. Um, I'm especially, uh, inspired by nature. So when, before the pandemic, when we could go outside <laughs> to different places, uh, okay. Sorry. Just got 10 years ago. Yeah. I know. Yeah. 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 Just now. Um, uh, I would get inspired by what I see around me. Um, and then I think the second part is that, um, there's something really fun about um, digging into a data set and then um, understanding kind of what it's about and trying to reflect that in uh, the visuals. So um, the one example I can kind of give is um, the uh, there's a project that I did um, that was about so this is a very small example, but it was about kind of um, people's frustrations in a survey. And so I decided to kind of um, 
Uh, so the way that I visualized that was people without frustrations, um, they would be kind of like, they would be represented as dots that's kind of like rising above this kind of line. And then those with frustrations would be dots that were like falling below kind of the line. So it's like very small details like this where I try to, um, we call it visual metaphors um, and try to like represent what the data set is. Um and I think that's a really fun practice because then you can kind of subconsciously hint to um, and someone that's reading the visualization to be like, this is, this is, um, even before we introduce the data set, we could be like, you know, this is, this is what, what, what the data set is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like that direction. So, I mean, I, I have a background in filmmaking mm-hmm. and one of the things that comes from that, we always talked about. You know, you watch a lot of movies when you're a filmmaker and you, you, yes, you like filmmaking and stuff like that. But one of the reasons you do it is you're trying to develop your vocabulary, so to speak, the metaphorical vocabulary of when I see this shot next to this shot, it makes me feel this way. So when I have to do it in myself Mm -hmm. later in a film, I will remember that and try and put these together, even if it's an instinctual basis. I feel like that happens a lot as well with this. And to go back to your earlier point of the discussion happening within the community of like, this just needs to be as Spartan as possible. So it represents the numbers. That's like the Helvetica movement in typesetting kind of a thing of like, let us be as, you know, uniform as possible here Mm -hmm. so that the content is not overshadowed by the display. But sometimes you need the display to support the content as well. It Mm -hmm. can, it's just as valid of a choice. Uh, And again, it comes down to the vocabulary that you know is how much you're able to make those decisions to go for one style versus another. I I will extend that just a little bit further because it also comes back to language. Um, I've got to bring it up on my computer here, but I found that this, it's not really a website. It's a methodology uh, called Refold refolds.la is the website and it's just like a roadmap for learning language skills but their idea is the traditional methods even like duolingo they don't necessarily work because you don't learn that way you can learn that Mm -hmm. way you can force it through your head and some people are better than others but i for example have had an impossible time learning language but when you're a kid, you learn through immersion, right? You mm-hmm. set up these habits where your parents tell you things over and over again. They say these phrases and mm-hmm. you eventually figure out what they mean through the context. You can do the same thing with language as well. Mm-hmm. And this sort of immersion is exactly what you do with your art forms as well. You do that with, you know, reading a bunch of other websites and picking up color palettes from there or, you know, again, watching movies and figuring out what certain lighting makes a certain emotion come across. It's this sense of immersion and picking it up over time, whether you're conscious of it or not. Ooh, I love that very much. Yeah. Um, and I think to add on to uh, that sense, I think um, uh, something you said previously that I really liked is kind of um, uh, when you were talking about um in filmmaking and there's kind of like how lighting is done and all of that um what that made me think of was um how one of the things that's really fun i think about making data visualizations is um having uh i think of them as like layers um and so kind of 
Um, I would imagine maybe that's pretty similar for like filmmaking where like the first layer is purely the visual and how beautiful it is. And, um, and, and that kind of like starts that that's probably what draws someone in, um, to the film to begin with, or to the, to the data visualization to begin with. And as you go through, um, there's kind of like, uh, for us, there's maybe the, the text that kind of like describes what, um, how to read the visualization or like what we're trying to get out of the visualization. Um, and so, and then, so, uh, what I find really fun and exciting is to be able to, um, hopefully have people, leave the experience um you know uh getting what they want out of it and i guess what i mean by that is like maybe some people will come in and they'll just like look at the pretty pictures or the pretty images and then they'll they'll leave after that and they'll be happy with that and then maybe there's like some people that will come in and they'll like read everything and like read the analysis and be happy with that and then um something i like to do is also kind of like give the exploratory tools so that like people can do their own um try to find their own um and do their own analysis with the data and then dig really deep into the data and then and then leave after that um and so kind of what you were talking about, about the filmmaking, um, reminded me of that kind of like layered process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's correlation between most sort of art. And it's mm -hmm. interesting as well. One of the, the things um, that I wanted to bring you on to the show and we talked about bringing you on is because I don't know that a lot of engineers always think of what they do as artwork, as artistic, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's this myth and it is a myth that, you know, coders are very pure logic and, you know, like no heart kind of a thing, which drives I, me crazy because it's not at all. It's I a different actually, type of creativity. Yeah, I was going to say, I actually feel like code is an art form. Like, I feel yes. like when you, yeah, I feel like, yeah, we can probably agree on this. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, but still, this is much more a visual art than perhaps a... Well, engineering, right? Uh, putting anything together in a pleasant fashion is engineering. Yeah. Editing of music or stuff is engineering too. So there is art there. Absolutely. But this one is much more visual. And um, I just, I really like when people are doing those crossovers regardless. It's it's nice to see people that can sort of span the gap. So the last bit we'll make, maybe talk about. And Scott, I want you to feed into this first. What tools have you used when you've had to visualize stuff? So as an example, I've had to use plenty of chart libraries to get stuff done. One time I made some crazy SVG that was an interactive timeline with bubbles you could drag out, but the whole thing was inside an SVG controlled by Angular, which was cool. But I, why did, I'm sure there's some library that helps with that. Uh, Scott, what have you used in the past to help you with visualizations? Well, I would say I've, I have used... Um, uh, high charts to mm -hmm. to actually like create like a really like bog standard kind of like what you would expect from a bank like charts um, showing you you know payments or mortgages or, or or whatever like just to yeah like what I would consider like fairly like run of the mill like data mm -hmm. visualization I think I would personally be um, uncomfortable trying to do something else um like trying to trying to take that data and actually make something like in the way that you do Shirley because I do actually think that it is so um it is really artistic for me like it and it is 
Um, and it is something that I think is like, like beyond me, really. Like I, I would need somebody to actually, um, I would need somebody to actually create like uh, what it should look like before I could actually attempt to do it. So my experience with um, with chart libraries is limited to things like um, high charts, and it is just like what I would consider like it tells a story for sure, but like. Mm-hmm. It's really like quite a basic story and like not really any flair amongst it. Ooh, what an interesting point. Um, I actually respectfully disagree because I think that even, (laughs) (laughs) I think even, I feel like, uh, you know, sometimes we think of creativity as this like mythical creature that we're like trying to, you know, like that we're, we're trying to like go after, um, but I actually, and, and I do feel that way sometimes of like, oh, I don't feel creative at all, like doing this project. But I feel like creativity is actually, to, to kind of, to address your point about how you feel like you might not um, be able to do the, like, some some of the visualizations that I have in my portfolio or in my book, um, I actually think that a lot of that is just a lot of practice. Um, and then I think there is, a, I think it's all just going back to the data visualization is a design problem, there are like a really good set of rules um, and guidelines uh, and, you know, written out in many different books um, about how to think about data and communicate data. Um, And so I'll I'll just mention one book that uh, I've found extremely helpful is uh, called The Functional Art by Alberto Cairo. Um, It's probably one of the like most famous in our community. Um, and I think it's just knowing all of those. I feel like design is very much knowing about all of those rules and knowing about when to follow them and when to break them. And creativity is very much just like sitting down and then just like doing it over and over and over again. So like all I'm trying to say is like I I think like if you if if that's not something you want to do, I totally respect that. Um, but if it is something you want to do, then I, I wouldn't ever want to tell someone like you, you just don't have what it takes. I think everybody has what it takes. I, like. I think, yeah. <laughs> I, I, and I do agree with you on that. Like, it's just that I've never found that this has been like the discipline, like for me, the creative outlet for me. Like, yeah. I, I, I think that um, like I have other like creative pursuits like music mm-hmm. and I would be completely comfortable with that. And somebody would say the same thing that I yeah. just said, um, like, but oh, also- I can't do that. Like, well you can but like you just have to practice a little and you also haven't been given the the brief no no i I really haven't no and and that and that's the thing so if someone says hey i already have an idea of what i want to look like Mm -hmm. it's like one of these things from shirley's you'll be like oh hey shirley what tool did you use to help you make this (laughs) yeah because if on if you just did it with pure javascript more power to you but i guess you do use some sort of libraries uh to help right yeah. So actually, yes. Um, so the uh, n- the library that I've just used all through my career is D3, um, which is uh, the JavaScript library for making data visualizations on the web. <laughs> um, and I guess uh, um, I think a lot of the uh, kind of charting libraries, I think a lot of them are um, either built on top of D3 or kind of like conceptually like a higher like conceptually higher level from D3 but I guess I'll I'll just um 
I, I've also heard of a lot of people saying that um, they're a little bit intimidated by D3. And to that, um, I'm, I'm just going to say that I understand uh, that there is a little bit of a learning curve with D3 um, because I, I think it's just not the, – the way that we think about it is like a little bit different from a lot of other JavaScript libraries. But, but um, what is really cool is that because it's uh, very modular, you can think of D3 as just a bunch of tools in a toolbox that's helping you make D3. And you can just pick and choose which parts you need. So the part that actually has the most learning curve is uh, the part that we use to render SVG and render to Canvas. Um, and it has this concept called like enter exit, enter update exit, which actually is just um, conceptually this very similar to how React and uh, Vue, and I don't actually know Angular all that well, but how like React and Vue has the virtual DOM and they do the diffing for you. Um, that's what the biggest learning curve for D3 is. So if you already know React or Vue or any of these kind of like... Um, libraries, then what you can do is have React or Vue do all of the hard parts of doing the DOM diffing and rendering, and then use the parts of D3 that's like, um, that no, no other libraries do. So things like um, calculating different layouts and um, uh, visualization specific interactions and you can just pick all, all of those modules that was a little bit of like a like a rant but um that was uh sorry a tangent but um d3 is the one that i use the most often it just celebrated its 10-year uh birthday which is amazing and like in terms of the front end world um and the things, the the libraries that I couple with D3 the most is I really like using, I used to use Backbone, then I used React, and now I use Vue. Um, and I think next I want to try Svelte. Um, so that helps me with managing kind of like user interactions and like data state. Um, and then I use Greenstock uh, to help me with any sort of animations I'm trying to do. Um, and then I use Lodash to do a lot of data transformations, though I think there's much better libraries for doing data transformations. And that's the four that I use the most. I think that's really the main takeaway from our show in general is this idea that as frontenders in particular, I mean, there's some just geniuses out there that have made these wonderful tools to help. And almost anything you can think of, you can get it done, you know? Yeah. And if you have that knowing it, it might take you days of stress and research and like banging your head against the wall. Yeah. But then someone will mention, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you can just use this thing. And you're like, okay, now I can solve that problem. Uh, it's it's a wonderful place to be. Yeah, Definitely. So we're uh, getting closer to the end of the show. We're going to move into our segment, True Hero. Uh, in this segment, we like to highlight a few of the true front-end heroes that are working across the planet to make the lives of all our other front-enders easier and to thank them for all that they do. So this time around, Shirley, you recommended we, uh, or you nominated Amelia Wattenberger. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a bit about why and, uh, and what she does? Oh, yeah. So Amelia, uh, she makes a lot of, um, well, first of all, she wrote a whole book called uh, Full Stack Data Visualization with D3. Um, 
And she also created a, I think, a whole course around that. Um, I've I've never personally checked it out, but I've heard a really, really, um, just because it came out after I've already started doing D3, um, but I've heard really, really great things about her book and her course. Um, but the, the, the work that Amelia does that I think is absolutely amazing is um, all of her blog posts about, um, you know, using D3 with React or um, explaining, let's say she has one about the force layout of D3. Um, and so she just has a lot of these like kind of like tutorial explainers um, that the only way I can describe it is like, it's just so thoughtfully explained. Um, it's kind of like beautifully, I can only say it as it's beautifully choreographed because she has things like um, the demo and the code side by side. And as you scroll, it like highlights different parts of the code and that like, you know, does something in the demo. Um, I I just keep looking at her work um, and her blog posts in all. And so that's why I wanted to... Um, uh, I nominate Amelia also because she's just amazingly kind and just a great person overall. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful choice. The work is outstanding and inspiring, which is one of the things that heroes often are. Mm-hmm. So then next, uh, any proper hero is a well-rounded one. So we want to share some simple musical picks that we've been listening to lately. Scott, what is your favorite thing that you've been listening to? Um, well, I listened the other day to, um, Lana Del Rey's new album, um, which is really good. Like, um, like she's so prolific, like she's made like so many albums in such like a short space of time, like, and they're all really good. And, uh, this one is, it's, um, uh, chemtrails over the country club. Um, mm. but really, really, really great album. I honestly, I've only listened to it like twice, but I really thought like, this is really good. Big fan of hers anyway. Um, so yeah, I think the next few weeks I'll be listening to that a few more times. Nice. Thanks. Shirley, what about you? Yeah. So, um, I've actually, uh, we've had the song on repeat for like the past month, um, which is a, so- a K-pop song. Um, by artist named Changha. Changha is, I think, how you pronounce her name, and it's spelled C-H-U-N-G-H-A. Um, and she has a new song out called Dream of You, uh, which is such a nice bop. Um, it's super addicting. I can't get it out of my head. Um, but I think the coolest part is that uh, she has, she like, lived in America for a little bit. Um, so I think a lot of the songs on this album is in English, I think a dream of you, the song she sings completely in English. So um, it's like kind of like the really uh, like boppy K-pop vibes, but everything is in English, which is like, it's <laughs> blows my mind a little bit. <laughs> nice. Okay, we'll check it out. Um, and for my side, uh, I normally do sort of electronic music or something because that's what I code to. But um, this weekend, I've been doing a lot more walks outside. And I always go back to this one album that came out in 1997. And like, when I was that, you know, teenager, I put it on constantly on repeat until it just sunk into my very being. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, I don't even know what genre it necessarily is. Uh, it's an album called The Book of Secrets by Lorena McKennett. 
And Lorena McKennett is, she's Canadian, um, but she sounds Irish when she sings. Um, and she really comes across there. All the songs have this sort of like Celtic vibe to them. And it's, oh, I don't know how to explain it. It's so good. And you need to be in the right mood for it. It's very much like a solitary long walks in nature mm-hmm. kind of music. Um, and there's vocals and stuff, but they're just, it's just beautiful, 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 beautiful stuff. So not my normal, but heartily recommend it. Great. So it looks like that's all the time we have for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you should like Heart or Star Us in your podcatcher of choice. Please, please. Reviews and ratings are how the fancy algorithms help uh, people find our content. And the power to help is within you. And none of you have done it yet. And I'm watching you now because come on. Um, If you have any questions or topics you want covered in our next episode, you can send a tweet to us at Heroes Front End. We'll add it to our list. Uh, Until next time, heroes, remember, with great front end power comes great responsibility. See you next time.